G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. When you go to church, the two, the major focus is on the Bible and there, as you will be aware, are two Testaments. You've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, it's the story of how God takes a people for himself in the formation of the nation of Israel. It's in that history that we see the good, the bad, and the ugly aspects of a fallen humanity. But it's not a story without hope. A thread runs through the Old Testament that looks forward to a time when God will intervene in the plight of sinful humanity and set things right. Throughout the Old Testament, there is anticipation of a coming Messiah and the mechanism that would bring the overflow of the promises that were made to Abraham, where all the nations of the world would have access to the redemption of God. So a new book today by author Michael Rater encourages readers to reflect on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ by exploring how the Old Testament foretold the coming of the death of the Messiah in pictures, poems, and prophecies. Well, Michael Rater is director of the Centre for Biblical Preaching. He's the author of over 30 books and articles, including the 2004 Australian Christian Book of the Year, which was called Stirrings of the Soul. Well, his latest book is called Shadows of the Cross, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. So a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Michael Rater. Thank you, Neil. Good to be back. Well, Michael, uh, this book, and uh, I haven't quite finished it yet, but been been reading some of the elements that you're talking about, and uh, just short uh, ways that you're talking about these elements of the Old Testament, bringing in your own personal perspective and drawing out of uh, the text those things that point to a time when the cross would be so valuable, so important. In fact, the biggest issue in the history of the world was coming. Uh, the inspiration, uh, first of all, writing about the cross, because I imagine that this has uh, been a passion of yours for a long time. Well, um, well it came out of a request to write a series of 40 studies for Lent for next year. And Lent, of course, is part of the church year, which leads up to, to Good Friday and Easter. So it seemed to me appropriate, given its Lent and we're thinking about the cross and the resurrection, that we look at that issue, particularly the cross, and do so in a place where we don't often go, and that's the Old Testament. I think we know... There are certain prophecies there which are quite famous, like Isaiah 53, which point forward to the cross. But I just don't think, Neil, that Christians tend to read their Old Testaments with Christ-focused glasses and understand that, in fact, the the whole Old Testament is a preparation for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, who will die and rise again. (sighs) 
before we get into some of those good details that you're already uh, forecasting we're going to talk about, and uh, I'm looking forward to those, uh, when you say this is a book that's designed for Lent, now let's yep. talk about Lent just for a moment. Yes. Uh, clear the air on some things, because not all churches actually do have this sort of you know 40 days in the lead up to Easter where they're intensifying their mm. understanding of their faith. But some churches, of right. course, have this time, some don't. But you've got this, right. it's written in a way that people can use this in the lead up to Easter to intensify their understanding. Yep. Yeah, or any time. Yes, it's interesting. We, we, I think we have a century, the thing called the church calendar or the church year, which I think churches across the world would follow. We've left, what we have left now is Christmas and Easter and probably nothing else. But there's still part of the church which recognize and follow the church calendar. And there are, I think, strengths in that. Uh, the church I attend, we remember each year uh, Trinity Sunday and uh, and Pentecost Sunday, just a time to focus on key events in the history of our faith. And for some Christians, as you say, uh, Lent is an important part where you take 40 days to in particular reflect on and prepare for really what are the, the central events of our, of our life and faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this book is helping people to do that. So you can use it really at any time of the year, but Lent would be, I think, particularly appropriate. And the book is not about trying to convince people of the value of understanding the fact of prophecy, the authenticating proof of the inspiration of the Bible. Really, you're unpacking the events as they are uh, uh, talked about uh, throughout the Old Testament, and you're bringing you're bringing those into our own understanding and the way mm-hmm. we apply them to our lives. Uh, how, how do you describe the way that you have approached uh, these prophecies? Well, I'm just trying to help people to understand really how, how to read the Bible. Uh, I, mean, I think, well, for example, I think I mentioned two Timothy three fifteen, which for me is a key verse where Paul uh, talks about just the Scripture, which of course by that he means the Old Testament, which he says to Timothy, "Make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ." Now, I think we think, yes, the Gospels do that, and of course Paul's letters. But that the Old Testament, that Genesis, Leviticus, Samuel, Chronicles, Psalms, Zechariah, make us wise for salvation through Jesus. That, that is, you can read your Old Testament and be saved. You can find the way of salvation in Jesus Christ through reading the Old Testament. And I don't think most Christians understand that. I think they see, yeah, perhaps a shadow there, but it, it all comes, it's, it's in the light of day is, is the New Testament. Well, that's true. But there's enough there in the Old Testament to lead someone to faith in Christ. And I want to kind of show that from different parts of the Old Testament. Because essentially, when we talk about the first century church, uh, when we read about those events that happened in the Gospels, uh, the believers then didn't have the New Testament to say this is our standalone understanding of of what Mm. God is doing. They actually had to look at all of those prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled to actually give value to their faith. Yeah, I'm sure when they gather together, I mean, they, they would have some of the stories of Jesus which are passed around, and after a while, they would receive letters from Paul. But I think when they gather together in their homes, uh, weekly for a meal together and prayer and singing, they opened their Bibles, which was their Old Testament, and, and, and read them and reflected upon them and understood them in the light of the coming of Jesus. 
And of course we have this strange challenge, don't we, at the moment, because as Christian believers, and we look back and we can look at the Old Testament, we can still see the fulfillment of those prophecies in Jesus Christ. But you have the Jewish people today who still have trouble uh, seeing Jesus as their Messiah, mm. and for some of them still waiting for another Messiah. Does that throw a little bit of uh, is a murkiness into the way we think about Messiah? Well, I, th- I think these things are spiritually revealed. I, I, you know, I think um, Paul talks in Romans about a hardening being upon Israel for a time. And if anybody, Neil, we both know this, coming to, it takes God's Spirit's work to open our eyes to see Jesus, whether you're, you're Jewish or Muslim or agnostic. I think it just takes a spiritual work to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. Uh, and we pray that he does that in the, in the, in the hearts and minds and eyes of, of, of Jewish people. But it's, it's as I said before, it's, it's a way to understand the Bible, not as 66 discrete books, but as one story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, focused on the Lord Jesus. And it's not just Jewish people, Neil, I don't think, who don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. I think many Christian people don't really see him there either. I think we see the Old Testament as good guidelines for moral living. As I say in my book, you know, have the faith of Abraham, don't be an adulterer like David, and that's about it. It's not, in our minds, giving us the way of salvation. Okay, so when we talk about this way of salvation, and I know that there'll be listeners saying, well, in my church, we talk a lot about uh, guidelines for moral living too, and there's not so much of a focus, not so much of a focus on uh, these elements that maybe for some a little harder to find, uh, or some obvious and some less obvious. Uh, But when we talk about the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the passion of Jesus, uh, the cross, but not just what happened as Jesus hung on the cross, but in the lead up to the cross. This is where uh, these uh, fulfilled Bible prophecies uh, show their deep meaning, isn't it? Yes, and it's there are, there, there are clearly prophecies, and I mentioned these, which point forward to, let's say, the betrayal of Judas or the mocking of Christ. But again, it's as you said in your introduction, it's the whole story. The story of the Old Testament, the whole story, is a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It begins there in Genesis, well, as early as Genesis 3, the promise of one who will come, who will crush the serpent's head. And all that happens, all that God does in Israel's history, uh, in, in right through, is preparing us for the coming of the one who will right the wrongs that took place in the fall in the Garden of Eden. So the whole story points forward, and it's not just a verse here or there, it's the entire Old Testament. The narrative points forward to its fulfillment in the Christ event. So how, Mike, do we understand this idea that Jesus is the main issue in the Old Testament? Because for a lot of people picking up the Bible today, well, they say, well, Jesus came sort of halfway through. Uh, he's there at the start of the New Testament. Uh, but uh, but how do we understand this whole uh, focus and this thread that I mentioned uh, that flows through the Old Testament, that Jesus is actually the whole story in himself? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was... I want to say, of course, he's there at the very beginning. Indeed, he's there in Genesis 1. We know from the, the New Testament that God made the world. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, the Word was with God, and by the Word, all things were made. So even in Genesis 1, we find the Lord Jesus there as the creative power of all things. But then what God does, 
God gives us a picture in the nation of Israel. Here's his son, his people, who are meant to be a light of the nations and draw people to himself. And as you said, the story of Israel is a story essentially of their failure. Then comes the man who calls himself the true Israel, the one who's the true light of the nations, the one who's the true son of God, whose light and life draws people to himself. So the whole history of Israel is, in a sense, a preparation for the coming of Jesus. Okay, let's come back to uh, the Garden of Eden, because I know that this is the very, very first uh, chapter or the very first focus that you've got in your your focus, uh, the shadows of the cross, the cross in the garden. So for people who are thinking that somehow or other the cross is just the beginning of the New Testament, you've uh, highlighted uh, where the cross can be seen right back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. How do people see that? Well, we see, we all know the story very well of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and the consequences of that for their own relationship as a man and a woman, the impact on creation, which is now in hostility to them, the fact they're cast out of the garden. But then in the middle of that, God makes a curse to on the serpent. He speaks of a time when the seed, the descendant of Adam and Eve will come, the serpent will crush, will bruise his heel, so the serpent will, in some sense, inflict injury upon this, this seed, this child of Adam, but he will crush the serpent's head. The one who brought into the world death, sin, uh, dislocation from God, a day is coming when a son, a descendant of Adam, will bring about the end of this serpent and crush him. Uh, and, and really the rest of the Bible is the working out of that story. Uh, of the w- waiting for the one who will come, who we're told by by Paul, by his death on the cross, crushes the serpent's head and destroys the works of the evil one. So right there in the very beginning, uh, we're given the, the trajectory for the Bible story. And the way you talk about that, you talk about some things either in your own experience as you launch each one of these short chapters or you talk about an event or a, a focus or a, a paradigm that's happening somewhere in the world or and you do actually focus in on, on us Aussies. And then you, you build into there uh, a very clever way of being able to highlight these issues that come from these Bible prophecies and you end with a short prayer. There's also uh, a capacity here, and uh, just coming back to the purpose of your book, because you can use this in a small group, you've got some uh, discussion questions there that small groups can use so that you can begin to unpack that and and find out what the meaning is for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, uh, as I said before, what what I'm trying to do in this book is just to give people kind of a, a model of how to read, in particular, their Old Testaments, and uh, because I think so often, Neil, in the churches, in the sermons we hear in church, we don't get that. I, I think it's well, I, I teach preaching, as you know, and I, I tell the people that I train that when you read the Old Testament and you come to apply it to the lives of people today, you need to do two things as a pastor preacher. One, you need to show them how the Old Testament points forward to the gospel. It's it's preparation. It's promise. It's it's paradigm for what's to come. But secondly, it is it does give us to wisdom for godly living. So I want to I want our people to learn lessons for living today from the scriptures. But I think you have to do both. And in the questions I ask, 
I'm trying to get people to reflect on both these things. That is, how these passages uh, point forward to Christ and what that means for us, but also what we can learn as disciples of Jesus from these parts of the Bible. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Mike Rado is our guest, director for the Centre for Biblical Preaching and the author of a new book called Shadows of the Cross, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, Mike, as we continue this conversation about prophecy, and I appreciate that for some people uh, it's a little bit confusing because oftentimes when people think of prophecy, uh, they go along perhaps in their local church or there's a guest speaker, someone's coming along to talk about Bible prophecy, they're talking about things that are still to come. They're thinking about uh, end times prophecy. Uh, what's the value of looking back and affirming these prophecies already fulfilled in the Old Testament compared to maybe the exciting idea of looking at what's coming still ahead? Well, I think we need to be very wary, Neil, of... We want to look forward ahead to the Lord's coming. Did we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus... But once we get into trying to work out what that means in details, when and where and how, I think we need to tread very, very carefully. We always have to revise. Every generation revises their prophecies, their expectations, because things didn't quite work out the way they thought that they would. It's interesting, when you read the Old Testament, it speaks of the coming of the Messiah. But we know, in fact, there are two comings of the Messiah, the Old Testament spoke really of one. We know that it's, 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 he's come, and he'll come again. Look, I'm preparing a sermon for my church this Sunday, which is the beginning of Advent, another part of the church year, on Psalm 24, which speaks of the coming of the king. You know, the famous words, lift up your heads, you gates, lift up your ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And when the King of Glory came, the Lord Jesus, he came in a manger, uh, the Prince of Peace, to bring salvation. But the one coming here, spoken of, is going to come in battle. Well, it's true, too. He'll come again, of course, to make war and judge his enemies. So what the Old Testament speaks of as one coming, in the New, we realize, is two comings. His first coming to announce the coming of the kingdom, the second one, to bring that kingdom into fulfillment and fruition. Is it the case, Mike, that for those who are more preoccupied with the prophecies of the second coming, that the affirmation of the validity of those second coming prophecies actually is confirmed or founded in the very fact of all of the fulfillments of the prophecies that have gone before? Yes, but as I put out in the book, though, most of these have been fulfilled in, I mean, the cross, not just the cross, the resurrection, the teaching, the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, we do await, as I said, the second coming, but I think, in my view, the details given about that second coming are kept fairly vague. I think the call for us by Jesus is just to watch and be ready not to sit down and do our numbers and our figures and read our diaries and read our newspapers and try to work out the details. The big call is to, to watch and be prepared so that when he comes, you're found faithful. That's, that's the emphasis in, the, in the, uh, the New Testament. And I think we need to keep our focus there. 
And for those who think that perhaps the idea of looking at all of those Old Testament prophecies is something that scholars do, and uh, I'll trust someone scholarly like Mike Rater to, to stand up and tell me what that means, without exploring that myself, uh, what you're doing is you're introducing a very easy way for people to appreciate what scholars can understand about the Old Testament prophecies. Yeah, I like to think of what I'm doing, Neil. I'm a spiritual optometrist. That is... I'm giving you a new set of glasses. Now, when you get a new set of glasses, sometimes it takes a while just to get the focus right. But after a while, you, you, you see things clearly. I'm saying to people, let's put on some Christ-focused glasses. It might take a while initially <laughs> before you see things clearly, but you learn to read your Bible in the way that God wants us to read it. And that is to read both Old and New Testament in the light of the central event, which is the coming of our Saviour and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you about your favourite parts of the book in just a few moments, but let's take a call. Robin is in Mount Morgan in Queensland. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Yes, hi. And hi, Mike. Hi, Robin. Yeah. As I recall, you guys already know each other. Yeah, from many years ago. Yes, we've spoken before, I think. Yes. Huh? <laughs> Robin, what are um, your thoughts? Yes, look, um, the Old Testament, I've always loved the Old Testament. It's just, and really, um, as uh, Mike is saying, um, the old and new, the God of both is consistent. It's, and one um, highlights the other and, and they, um, they relate anyway. And the way I see it too is um, the Old Testament is more like the picture form of the spiritual war that we're all going through. So the nation of Israel went through um, wars physically and we can relate to that with um, the battles that we have in our own life. In fact, um, the reason I, I loved the Old Testament um, was that um, because I was so depressed and I wasn't getting any answers anywhere, the churches couldn't help me, they didn't really understand me, I didn't know myself, but I found just by reading the Old Testament I found comfort and I knew that God was ministering to me. And so when I'd find myself in situations where normally I'd get so anxious, um, I just knew that God was the answer and, and, um, and it, it just ministered to me. And I, love, I still love the Old Testament. And I encourage people to read it all the time. Mm. Two really good points there, Robin. I think, first of all, you're right. I think too many pastors just hide the Old Testament from their people, which is such a shame. It, as you say, it's wonderful. If you say to a church, we'll spend the next 10 weeks in Leviticus, they look at you kind of <laughs> aghast, and then discover the wonders of Leviticus, or Psalms, or Proverbs, or Obadiah, whatever it is. It's just marvelous. The other thing to say is, as you rightly said, all those wars in the Old Testament point forward to the true war, which is the spiritual warfare Paul talks about in his letters. Again, another good example of what we see physically in the Old Testament is fulfilled spiritually in the Gospel in the New Testament. Okay, thank you so much to Robin from Mount Morgan. You can be part of our conversation today. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316, 1-800-316-316. Uh, Mike, let me ask you about uh, some of your favourite passages mm. that you have in fact, decided to write about, uh, which ones come to mind as, uh, as really outstanding uh, favourites of yours? Well, I've chosen a few from the book of Judges, which is a, I mean, a very dark book, <laughs> uh, but it's a gripping book. I mean, the stories are just are terrific stories. 
but the, the judges gives us a good example again of how how to read our Bibles. The judges, of course, are the saviors. Uh, very flawed on the whole, really flawed people, but saviors, uh, deliverers, rulers who bring justice to the people, and therefore, of course, do point forward to the the saviour, the deliverer, the just judge who will come to rule us. So you, when you look at their lives, you, for example, Samson, I mean, really, a most unimpressive character, but by his death, won a far greater victory than in his life, like another saviour. Uh, Gideon, who, with a handful of men, with some pots and pans and trumpets, defeated a massive army. I mean, how foolish. But that points forward to another man who, by dying on a cross, how, how can that bring victory? But by a ignoble death on the cross, brought life and victory to millions. So you see again and again and again in the stories of these flawed men, these flawed saviors, pictures, shadows of the perfect true savior who will win the great victory. They'll bring peace not just for 50 years, but peace for his people for eternity so wonderful stories, but lovely pictures of the true judge and the true saviour. And you haven't held back here. Uh, all of these uh, attention to these stories is not all about the, the sorts of Sunday school type stories you teach to children. Uh, I note that you've got some significant, uh, even disturbing stories uh, that mm-hmm. you wouldn't want children to be exposed to uh, in those Sunday school classes. I'm thinking of the the uh, the one from the judges uh, the king who had a belly full. Oh, yeah. uh, and yeah. uh, and it is a it's bloodthirsty, it's dirty, it's graphic, it's graphic. <laughs> and uh, you got 1 minute to quickly explain <laughs> that one how that works cuz we're going to news in a moment. Go me to explain that one briefly. <laughs> if you if you can, yes, briefly. If you know, if you know the story of, of the fat King Eglon uh, is a very obese man, and Ehud, the saviour, comes in, and the writer describes, I think, rather humorously, but yes, very graphically, uh, him thrusting his dagger into the man's enormous belly, and the detail is given in the text of what comes out. The, the, the whole sword goes in, and a grotesque picture of what comes out. And, but the point I make is, I think what the writer is saying there is this isn't just a a death, this is a humiliating death. And in the Old Testament of the Old World, uh, you didn't just defeat your enemies, you would humiliate them. And Paul alludes to that uh, in Colossians, where he speaks about Christ leading the triumphal procession to the heavenly realms, showing there the humiliating defeat of the forces of evil. Uh, Mike, let's come back to some of your favourites when you've talked about some of those prophetic places in the Old Testament that look forward to the cross. Mm. Uh, one of those, and uh, what will be a story familiar to lots of listeners, is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Mm. How does that, for you, reflect uh, a prophetic understanding of what was coming at the cross? Well, I think... Uh in Sunday school or in church, when you hear sermons on this very famous and wonderful story, uh, the application, the message is, look at the face of this man, Daniel, who in the face of opposition and death, uh, trusted God and was uh, prepared to, to die for his faith, and the Lord rescued him. And that's a good application to draw, and that's appropriate. But sadly, that's where our sermons tend to stop. And I want to say this book... Uh, they don't stop there. In a sense, that's just the beginning. And the parallels between 
Daniel and Jesus are striking. There in Daniel is a conspiracy by people jealous of Daniel who want to destroy him, the very motive of the Pharisees against Jesus. There in Daniel 6 is a king, a ruler, sympathetic to Daniel, who wants to see him alive, but is hamstrung by the enemies, as you find similarly in the Gospels. There's Pilate, who knows this man is innocent, but is trapped by the Pharisees. Both men are entombed, placed in a tomb seal, uh, and is it almost as it were, Daniel almost dies. Well, he doesn't die, the Lord delivers him, but it's as good as dead with the, the, the lines there, and the Lord rescues him. Of course, in the Gospels, the true Daniel, the real Daniel, the one he points forward to, actually is killed, and, and like his predecessor, walks out of his tomb alive, unscathed. So you see there, I think, a wonderful uh, portrayal of a number of key features of the passion of the Lord Jesus. So this story, like so many in the Testament, isn't just a model to us of faithful obedience, but it points forward to the one who is the true Daniel. And I think that was the, the intent of the divine author. When God revealed this story to the writer, in his, in, in his mind was this should point forward to the one who was coming. As you say, we oftentimes uh, will look for the facts in the prophecy, uh, but you're taking things another step deeper, and you've brought in their personal application, and some might even say a little bit of license in the way that you're describing these things, uh, talking about the entrapment of Daniel and uh, Mm. being there in the lion's den. Uh, Is there room in our Christian faith for letting our imagination run a little wild and to appreciate some of the similarities to uh, these things like when you say the entrapment of Jesus, something like the entrapment uh, of uh, of Daniel. Uh, is there room there for us to be imaginative? Well, one needs to be careful, Neil. You, you can go too far and read things there which aren't intended. It, just take, it takes wisdom and discernment. And I think sometimes, to be frank, I probably get it wrong sometimes. But it's not just creativity or imagination there is biblical warrant. Uh, when Jesus rose again, he was there with the disciples, and he opened their minds to under, their minds to understand the scriptures. How all he had all that's written, all that's written in the law, uh, the Psalms, the history points forward to him. He gave them a, not just a Bible study, but a way from this point on, a way to read their Old Testaments. They're all fulfilled in him. And as I said earlier, there's Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.15. All scriptures God breathes, but it makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. So there from the mouth of both Paul, Jesus and Paul is our mandate to start to read our Bibles through Christ-centered glasses. So it's not just using imagination. I think it's reading the Bible the way that God wants us to read the Bible, just to read the Old Testament as looking forward to Jesus. But that that takes wisdom and discernment, and you you, you can go too far. When you talk about Jesus as Savior, as Deliverer, and you were talking about even the Old Testament judges, in some sense, saviors to their people, uh, this idea of a deliverer or a saviour, when you uh, look at any of those characters from the Old Testament and you see that they actually in that role, is there in that uh, some level of connection there uh, to what might be coming with the ultimate saviour, the ultimate mm. deliverer? Yes, that's right. I, 
and Jesus himself says that. He talks to the Pharisees about someone who is greater than Solomon who is here. So he lords the wisdom of Solomon, but I am the greater Solomon. He speaks of Jonah, who said three days in the belly of a fish. Uh, and he makes it clear that that points forward to him. So Jesus himself draws on these Old Testament characters and makes the point that in some aspects of their life and ministry, they are foreshadowing him. Not just the cross, but so many dimensions of the person work of Christ are foreshadowed in these persons, these characters we find in the Old Testament. Now, when we're looking at these Old Testament prophecies, and a lot of these, of course, are for the Jewish people. Uh, when we talk about Jesus at the cross and this way that uh, he has brought about the enlargement of this salvation story that comes to the rest of the world, is that sort of thing a part of Old Testament prophecy? I mean, when we know the story about Abraham and, uh, and you know, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, uh, those sorts of things are, you know, that's, uh, that's like a factual thing, isn't it? It's a quoting of uh, one of the fathers. Uh, but what about uh, in prophecy, understanding this broader concept of salvation for us here in Australia? Yeah, good question. Of course, it, you could argue it goes back again to Genesis 1, where God creates, not God doesn't create Israel, God creates men and women and puts them in a paradise. And that's, that's a picture there of God's plan for, the, for all people that one day to return people from every tribe, nation, and tongue into paradise. But yes, you're right, there's, there's Abraham and the promise to him that uh, from his descendants, and as Paul says, in Galatians, that descendants is singular. From a descendant, a seed, someone will come who will bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And right through Israel's history, Israel's plan and purpose was to be a light to the nations. God saved her to be the means of salvation to the world, that by, by her life she would attract people to the Lord. And we see stories of people like Rahab and Ruth, a few, who are drawn to the Lord when they hear of his saving power. And it's always meant to do that, to, to, to draw the nations. God's plan's always been for the saving of people of all nations. But Israel failed, failed in that by her, her, her ungodliness. And now the call is to God's people not just to attract people by our lives, but to go out and proclaim to them the good news and bring in salvation to the Gentiles. But that, that's always been God's plan, is the saving of all people and the blessing of all people. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Mike Rader is our guest. We're talking about his new book called Shadows of the Cross, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. You can be part of our conversation on 1-800-316-316. Mike, one of the obvious ones, I suppose you would say, is uh, this story that uh, is of Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, as a, a pointing forward to things that would come at the cross, this one is uh, is just really, it's really, I think, uh, one of the ultimate uh, stories, isn't it? Well, you would have thought so, Neil, um, and it is. But again, I've I've heard sermons on this passage, uh, which makes no mention of that. Hmm. Um, where the only application drawn, and it's a valid one, is that again, have the faith of Abraham, who's given a very hard, incredibly hard uh, command by God, heartbreaking command, and yet uh, prepares, is prepared to believe God and has faith. So what a model of faith he is. And that's what Hebrews says. 
But again, the sermon stops there, which surprises me, given, I think, as you say, this passage is just full of allusions to to the cross. It, it begins with the command to take your son, your only son, whom you love. Well, that should drive us straight away, shouldn't it? I mean, is, is this just using imagination? But we, we know of the father who has an only beloved son. He takes his son up a mountain to a place of sacrifice. On his back, the son carries the wood of the sacrifice. He gets to the top of the mountain, and we're told the mountain's Moriah, which we're told in Chronicles is where Solomon built the temple. It's in Jerusalem. And there, on the top of the mountain, the son who carried the wood for sacrifice is about to be sacrificed. Of course, in Genesis 22, God speaks, and the son is not killed, and a ram is sacrificed. In the fulfillment of this event, God, in a sense, does not speak, and the son becomes the ram and is sacrificed. But the passage from beginning to end is, a, as you say, a graphic, uh, really, prediction, prophecy, uh, of the, the, the true Isaac, who be the true sacrifice. Uh, to me... And we, and we sell our people short, I think, Neil, when we don't point out that this is part of the intention of God in giving us this passage. Uh, to me, it speaks very loudly of uh, this idea of the substitutionary uh, death yes. of Christ, and uh, so beautifully illustrated in Abraham and Isaac. Yes, Absolutely. Which, of course, is a, is a doctrine which now many, of course, even Christians want to reject and despise. Uh, the fact that, you know, that Christ himself became our substitute and, and bore the wrath of God on our behalf. But it's, it's, it's at the center of our faith as Christians, and, and therefore at the center of the Bible. And you make special reference to the obedience of Abraham in doing what God said to do. Hmm. All right, we're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Graham in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Welcome along. Hello, Graham. Are you with us? Graham. Graham. Hello, Hello. Graham. Graham, what are your thoughts? Hello, I'd like you to say about uh, Daniel, the book of uh, Daniel and the book of uh, Zechariah. These foretell God's coming and his power. It talks very powerfully about uh, Christ coming and what what will happen in the end. Uh, and on top of that, today we are in a terrible situation. <clears throat> Our nations have rejected God. We see all the troubles coming upon us. And uh, so <clears throat> really that in Isaiah, the first chapter and the fourth chapters, it talks about that our nations have got no wisdom and no guidance. And uh, God said that... Uh, yes, I'm losing it. Anyway, Graham, uh, let, me just, uh, let me just cut in there. I can hear you uh, pointing towards those uh, second coming style prophecies. Uh, but uh, Mike Rader, your thoughts for Graham here, because he is talking about uh, authenticity of of the prophecies. Because as you look forward, uh, the authenticity of the fulfilment of those Old Testament prophecies enables you to be confident in, the, in those prophecies mm. for the future. Uh, what are your thoughts for Graham? Well, I think Graham is right that these prophecies are, are written often to a nation who are suffering at the hands of uh, cruel, oppressive rulers. 
that was true back in the days of Zechariah and Daniel. It's true for us today. And therefore, the lessons in these books for us is the same as the lessons for ancient Israel, that God is on the throne and we need not fear those who oppress us. But again, let me say, uh, we find these prophecies in particular pointing to Jesus. I'm glad he mentioned Zechariah. So I talk to Zechariah in my book. Those remarkable words in Zechariah chapter 12, where we're told that Israel, speaking of God, will look upon the one that they have pierced. There's a picture in Zechariah of Israel piercing God. Now John quotes that twice. The Apostle John, once in his gospel, to speak of the piercing of Jesus by the soldiers on the cross. And secondly, in Revelation, when those who pierced him were mourned because of him. So you see, John takes these these prophecies in Zechariah and shows that their fulfillment is primarily in the Lord Jesus and both his comings, first and second. Okay, thank you so much to Graham from Tasmania for your insight today. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Peter in Victoria. Hello, Peter. Welcome along. Oh, hello, Neil and your guest. I just um, off the subject a bit, but um, what your thoughts were on the nations uh, to be consecrated to the sacred heart of Mary, the mother of God, for um, peace, peace in the world. I never hear any of your talkers or guests talking on that. I'm a uh, Catholic and listening to you on most days, I'll tune in, but um, this year's the centenary year of the um, Fatima. Our Lady appeared in Fatima to the shepherd children and it's a big big, um, year for us with the rosary and saying the rosary devotions to our Mary, the Mother of God, and she asked those uh, shepherd children and her apparitions that we pray the rosary daily for world peace. Um, Interesting when you talk about those sorts of things, uh, Peter, because uh, you're alluding to what are practices in the Catholic Church uh, based on history and tradition and some interpretations there of the Scripture. Uh, let's get a thought or two perhaps from uh, from Mike Rader. Mike, what are your thoughts for Peter? Yes, look, Peter, you've caught me out here a little bit. I'm not too familiar with those particular events. On the other hand, it is striking when you turn to the Gospels to read about Mary and the news she received that she'll be the one who bear the world's saviour, and she sings a song. The song she sings is all about remembering God's promises to Abraham. In other words, she sees the promise that she'll bear the Saviour as a fulfilment of the Old Testament. In fact, the, the last words of her song are, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. So Mary herself sees the promise that she'll bear the Christ as a fulfilment of the whole Old Testament, which is the point I'm trying to make in my book. That she, Mary understood rightly how to read and understand her Old Testaments. It's about the promise of the coming Savior. And of course, in her, and in her womb, that came to fruition. And uh, interestingly, Peter, uh, from those who might be on a a Protestant perspective, uh, that caution that usually comes from Protestants is that uh, that caution not to 
uh, have a uh, a discrepancy in the way you have priorities about how you look at biblical prophecy. And of course, uh, I imagine that uh, you might agree here, Mike Rader, and I'll get your thoughts. But uh, but Jesus, the focus of biblical prophecy, rather than being diverted uh, to a, a, an understanding of biblical prophecy around Mary. Mm-hmm. I think clearly there are references to Mary that. Famously, in Isaiah, that a virgin, a young woman, will, will bear will bear a child. Um, so it's right in the sense that we, as Luke does, honours Mary. But of course, Mary recognises that her role is to focus on Jesus. Uh, she she exists both to bear the Christ and then to serve and worship the Christ. And she points us to Jesus. And we have to be so careful, don't we, that we don't place our attention where Mary would not want us to place it. I think she'd be, frankly, very upset and embarrassed that the attention was given to her, when in fact she knows it belongs to her son. She is simply the bearer of the cross child. What a, what a very privileged, privileged position. But she knows the focus must be on Jesus. He alone is the one worthy of trust and worship and adoration, not her. Peter from Victoria, thank you so much for your input today here on 2020. And time's almost run out. Let me come back to your book, Mike Rader, mm. uh, designed to be read any time, but uh, more specifically, uh, you're thinking that uh, this will be very valuable for small group gatherings in the lead up to Easter. And uh, the way you can look at some of these stories will bring a real focus on the cross. The cross is the central focus of your book, The Shadows of the Cross. Uh, what are your thoughts about about uh, people uh, making some plans for how they might actually uh, do some group studies in the lead-up to Easter? Well, I think the book's designed to do two things, Neil. It's, 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 there are daily readings, so I think you could well decide as an individual uh, to decide that this year you will, in one sense, observe Lent. That is, you'll take 40 days prior to the events of uh, Good Friday and Easter and each morning or evening read one of these fairly short reflections and pray. But as you said, there are questions, uh, and the questions cover about five five chapters. So you could meet as a group once a week for those four or five weeks and deal with some or all of those questions. But just to, uh, every year, uh, this book is published, a book like this, to prepare people for Lent on a variety of topics. But I felt that this year it would be really appropriate as we prepare to, to prepare ourselves for, for Good Friday and Easter to make the cross of Jesus the focus of our thoughts, our prayers, our discussion, our reflections. And I just think that uh, so it, it has a benefit, but also, as I said before, it'll help us to get our eyes trained into rightly how to read and understand the whole Bible. And of course, your book focuses on the cross, and we shouldn't ignore the idea that biblical prophecy from the Old Testament also looks forward to the next big issue, the next big celebration we have, of course, uh, Christmas, and that celebrates yes. the incarnation. And uh, that might be a discussion for another day because we've run well, out of time. Wife, yes, my wife thinks I should do that. My next book should be on thirty <laughs> studies on Advent. Okay. Well, Mike Rader, I'll point people to the book Shadows of the Cross and you can get a hold of it through the cepstore.com.au. Uh, I imagine it'll be available in good Christian bookstores wherever you're looking, but uh, Mike Rater uh, pointing people to that shadows of the cross seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Mike, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us today on 2020. It's a pleasure, Neil. 
Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.